the word of the Lord also came to me, saying, Take an offering from the exiles, from Heldai, Toviah, Yediah, and you go the same day and enter the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah, where they have arrived from Babylon, and take silver and gold, make an ornate crown, and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Then say to him, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, a man whose name is Branch, for he will branch out from where he is, and he will build the temple of the Lord. Yes, it is he who will build the temple of the Lord, and he who will bear the honor and sit and rule on his throne. Thus he will be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace will be between the two offices. Now the crown will become a reminder in the temple of the Lord to Helam, Toviah, Yediah, Hain, the son of Zephaniah, and those who are far off will come and build the temple of the Lord. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you, and it will take place if you completely obey the Lord your God. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we are grateful for your holy word. We're thankful that both from the Old Testament and the New Testament, you have clearly revealed the true gospel. And we thank you that Christ is the center of that gospel. Thank you that here in this passage, we learn of him as the branch and anticipate what he will come to do. We pray, Father, that we will be a part of fulfilling this plan of yours, this true gospel and the salvation that accompanies it. Because, Lord, we are those who are from far off and you have brought us near by the blood of Christ. Thank you for doing so and thank you for giving us a new heart and a desire to know you and to know your word that we might know your will and live a godly life to please you in every way. Be with us as we seek to know our Lord even better and to live for him. And we ask in his name, amen. Zechariah in the first chapters from chapter 1 all the way to chapter 6, verse 8, he has seen eight visions. We've already covered those eight visions. Now we turn to his oracles or his discourses, other things that God tells him and teaches him. And this at the start of his oracles, verses 9 to 15, is about the branch. That is the crown that's on the head of the high priest. This is a reminder that they should anticipate the branch coming into the world and him building up the true temple of God. Verse 9, the word of the Lord also came to me, saying, this is a reminder that each of these oracles or each of these visions have come from God. This is not Zechariah as some erratic or ecstatic person or religious fanatic. It is the word of the Lord that came to him. It either is or it is not. He's declaring it to be the case. And if it is the case, then we should give it our full attention. Well, in verses 10 and 11, he calls on the prophet to make a crown. And then in verses 12 to 13, what this crown anticipates. And verse 14, 
He says the crown will become a reminder, a reminder such as a symbol or a sign, a shadow. They remind us of what the significance is of the sign or the shadow. In this case, the crown. What does the crown on the head of Joshua, the high priest, represent? Well, it represents what he says in verses 12 and 13 about the branch. And this branch is the one who will be building the true temple of the Lord. The branch will build the true temple of the Lord, which comprises Jews and Gentiles. He's talking about a a temple of humans, a temple of people, a temple of redeemed people. And further, this one individual, the branch, who is the Christ, this one has two offices in one person. The branch will hold the two offices of king and priest. That which was forbidden throughout the whole of the Old Testament, except one example. That which was forbidden throughout the Old Testament is only possible in Christ, the branch, who is both a king and a priest. Verse 10, now 10 to 11, the command to take an offering of gold and silver. He says in 10, Take an offering from the exiles, from Heldai, Tovia, Yadiah, and go the same day and enter the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah, where they have arrived from Babylon. The command apparently is to take the gold from these notable exiles or returnees from exiles. We don't know anything more besides what this passage says, but because they are named, this presumes that they were significant men, leaders of the people, who would be in possession of the gold and the silver that they would have taken on the journey from Babylon or Persia back to the land of Judah. And they came together because he's telling them to go the same day as he is commanded to do so, to enter the house of this Josiah. Now, this Josiah is not King Josiah. It's a different Josiah where they have arrived from Babylon. They've arrived together because they journeyed together from Babylon where they were sent into exile. Remember, Zechariah is a prophet around 520 BC and the people of Judah were exiled from 605 BC to 535 BC. Their temple was destroyed in 586 BC and rebuilt in 516 BC during the time of the ministry of Haggai and Zechariah, also in the time of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. This is the period we're we're treating here. Also, Malachi is in this Persian period when the returnees come back to the land of Judah. This assumes that these slaves, exiles, returnees, possess gold and silver. How in the world would they be able to possess gold and silver for the prophet to take from their possessions and make this crown? The book of Ezra explains this. The book of Ezra, the first example is Ezra chapter 7. Ezra chapter 7. 
Ezra 7, 11 to 26. 7, 11 to 26. This is the decree of Artaxerxes to give them permission to return and to take gold and silver and other valuables. 7, 11. Now, this is the copy of the decree which King Artaxerxes gave to Ezra, the priest, the scribe, learned in the words of the commandments of the Lord and his statutes to Israel. Artaxerxes, king of kings, to Ezra, the priest, the scribe of the law of the God of heaven. Perfect peace. And now I have issued a decree that any of the people of Israel and their priests and the Levites in my kingdom who are willing to go to Jerusalem may go with you. For as much as you are sent by the king and his seven counselors to inquire concerning Judah and Jerusalem according to the law of your God, which is in your hand, and to bring the silver and gold which the king and his counselors have freely offered to the God of Israel, whose dwelling is in Jerusalem, with all the silver and gold which you shall find in the whole province of Babylon, along with the freewill offering of the people and of the priests, who offered willingly for the house of their God, which is in Jerusalem. With this money, therefore, you shall diligently buy bulls, rams, and lambs with their grain offerings and their drink offerings and offer them on the altar of the house of your God, which is in Jerusalem. And whatever seems good to you and to your brothers to do with the rest of the silver and gold, you may do according to the will of your God. Also the utensils which are given to you for the service of the house of your God, deliver in full before the God of Jerusalem and the rest of the needs for the house of your God, for which you may have occasion to provide, provide for it from the royal treasury. And I, even I, King Artaxerxes, issue a decree to all the treasurers who are in the provinces beyond the river, that whatever Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of the God of heaven, may require of you, it shall be done diligently, even up to 100 talents of silver, 100 cores of wheat, 100 baths of wine, 100 baths of oil, and salt as needed. Whatever is commanded by the God of heaven, let it be done with zeal for the house of the God of heaven, lest there be wrath against the kingdom of the king and his sons. We also inform you that it is not allowed to impose tax, tribute, or toll on any of the priests, Levites, singers, doorkeepers, Nethanim, or servants of this house of God. And you, Ezra, according to the wisdom of your God, which is in your hand, appoint magistrates and judges that they may judge all the people who are in the province beyond the river, even all those who know the laws of your God, and you may teach anyone who is ignorant of them. And whoever will not observe the law of your God and the law of the king, let judgment be executed upon him strictly, whether for death or for banishment or for confidence confiscation of goods, or for imprisonment. This issued by King Artaxerxes, that Ezra might have whatever he needs and, and provide for the house of the Lord and the ministry of the Lord. This is also mentioned in 824 to 30, 824 to 30, that this was provided for by the king. And this is uh, at a point when Ezra is actually on the journey. He's on the journey to return and provide these means. That's how the prophet Zechariah is able to ask these exiles for gold 
and silver. Now, verse 11, Zechariah 6, 11. And take silver and gold, make an ornate crown, and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. He says to make an ornate crown and set it on his head. There has been some speculation that the crown is the crown of a priest. However, this word is not used for a crown of a priest, but for the crown of a king. So in this way, it is perplexing why a royal crown is put on the head of a priest. Why in the world would that happen when this is forbidden? First, let's establish that this is the crown of a king. We'll see a few examples of this word used. First, 2 Samuel 12, 2 Samuel 12, and verse 30. 2 Samuel 12, 30. Then he took the crown of their king from his head, and its weight was a talent of gold, and in it was a precious stone. And it was placed on David's head, and he brought out the spoil of the city in great amounts. The crown of their king, when he defeated the Ammonites, he also defeated the king and took his crown and used it for his own head. That's the a clear example of the crown of a king. Also, or, or a royal crown. Esther, the book of Esther, chapter 8. The book of Esther, chapter 8, verse 15. 8.15. Now, in this case, it's not the king himself, but he is second to the king. Esther 8.15, Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white with a large crown of gold and a garment of fine linen and purple, and the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. This is after Haman's plot was discovered and then he was executed and the Jews were able to reverse their plight and they were delivered from death. When that happened, then Mordecai is decked with this, these garments and with the large crown of gold. He is second to the king, which actually it says in Esther 10, verse 3. Mordecai the Jew was second only to King Ahasuerus. And he wore a crown. And another one is... Jeremiah 13, Jeremiah 13, verse 18. 13, 18. This is a judgment oracle. And Jeremiah says this, 13, 18. Say to the king and the queen mother, take a lowly seat for your beautiful crown has come down from your head. He's preaching defeat of the king and queen so that they take a lowly seat instead of a high seat and they also have their crowns removed from their head because they are defeated by their enemies. So this crown is a royal crown. It's a kingly crown. 
it's not the crown or any headdress of a priest. Not typically so. That's why this is odd. For him, Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, as it says in Zechariah 6.11, he is a priest, the high priest. Now, we've already met this individual, Joshua, both in the book of Haggai and also early in the book of Zechariah. And here it's repeated that he is the high priest when Haggai and Zechariah were prophets. This is a different Joshua, not the Joshua of the book of Joshua. Okay, so then what is this about the priest having the crown? Why in the world? When it was forbidden. Remember, the greatest example of how this was forbidden takes place in the book of Samuel. In the book of Samuel, 1 Samuel 13. 1 Samuel 13. Where Samuel the prophet and priest... He was supposed to arrive for a festival and offer the initial sacrifice. But Saul was impatient. King Saul, who was not of the tribe of Levi, King Saul became impatient. And Saul came right at the time of the offering. But Saul had already prepared and offered the offering before Samuel arrived. Do you remember that? First Samuel 13, it says here, this is how dangerous it was for a king to transgress and assume the office of the priest. 13.8, now he waited seven days according to the appointed time set by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring to me the burnt offering and the peace offering. And, and he offered the burnt offering. And it came about as soon as he finished offering the burnt offering that behold, Samuel came and Saul went out to meet him and to greet him. But Samuel said, What have you done? And Saul said, Because I saw that the people were scattering from me, and that you did not come with, within the appointed days, and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash. Therefore I said, Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not asked the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, you have acted foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not endure. The Lord has sought out for himself a man after his own heart, and the Lord has appointed him as ruler over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. This is a judgment to remove the dynasty from Saul, from the tribe of Benjamin, and when he says here, I, the Lord has sought out for himself a man after his own heart, 13, 14, he's talking about David. And David will be announced in chapter 16. David and his dynasty will last forever, not Saul's. And David will be from the tribe of Judah, whereas Saul from Benjamin. There is another incident in the book of Second Chronicles. Second Chronicles 26, Second Chronicles 26, 16 to 23. 2 Chronicles 26, 16. Another incident of a king usurping the office of a priest. 
But when he became strong, his heart was so proud that he acted corruptly, and he was unfaithful to the Lord his God. For he entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. Then Azariah the priest entered after him and with him eighty priests of the Lord, valiant men. And they opposed Uzziah the king and said to him, It is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn incense. Get out of the sanctuary, for you have been unfaithful and will have no honor from the Lord God. But Uzziah, with the censer in his hand for burning incense, was enraged. And while he was enraged with the priests, the leprosy broke out on his forehead before the priests in the house of the Lord, beside the altar of incense. And Azariah the chief priest and all the priests looked at him, and behold, he was leprous on his forehead, and they hurried him out of there, and he himself also hastened to get out, because the Lord had smitten him. And King Uzziah was a leper to the day of his death, and he lived in a separate house, being a leper, for he was cut off from the house of the Lord. And Jotham his son was king over the king's house, judging the people of the land. Now the rest of the acts of Uzziah, first to last, the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amos, has written. So Uzziah slept with his fathers, and they buried him with his fathers in the field of the grave which belonged to the kings. For they said, He is a leper. And Jotham his son became king in his place. This was forbidden. So this is strange. However, it wasn't forbidden for every single person in the Old Testament. There's one exception, and that's in the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 14. Genesis chapter 14. 14, 17. 14 and verse 17. We'll read 17 to 20. 17 to 20. Then after his return from the defeat of Kedor la Omer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was a priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he gave him a tenth of all. This Melchizedek in verse 18 is called King of Salem. According to Psalm 76, 2, Salem is another term for Zion or Jerusalem. But was he of the earthly Jerusalem or was he of the heavenly Jerusalem? the heavenly Jerusalem, if we compare this passage to Hebrews chapter 7, the heavenly Jerusalem. Um, Also, it calls him a priest of God most high. Explicitly, he's called king and he's called priest of God most high. God himself doesn't need a priest, but God uses a priest. Correct? God has no need of a priest in terms of his own person, but he uses the priest for his purposes. In this case, this individual, Melchizedek, is greater than Abraham. 
Abraham is never called a king. Abraham is never called a priest of God Most High. And this Melchizedek blessed Abraham, verses 19 and 20. It says, and he blessed him and said, blessed be Abram of God Most High. So Melchizedek is greater than Abraham for that reason too, because Hebrews 7 says, the lesser is blessed by the greater. The one who has a greater position, a greater person, is the one who blesses the lesser one. Furthermore, it says in verse 20, and he gave him a tenth of all. That is, Abraham gave Melchizedek a tenth of all, which is also signifying the fact that the lesser tithes to the greater. Who is he? Well, Hebrews 7 identifies him, and that's in the discourse of Hebrews 5 to 10 of describing Christ as the ultimate fulfillment of the priesthood of Melchizedek. In other words, this Melchizedek was the pre-incarnate Christ who met Abraham. And the pre-incarnate Christ signifies, symbolized what the incarnate Christ would do, what he would be. He would be king and priest. Now, this concept is not only here in the book of Genesis. It's also in, in other places, such as in the book of Psalms. Psalm 110. Psalm 110. Psalm 110, verse 1, 1 to 7. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power in holy array from the womb of the dawn. Your youth are to you as the dew. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. He will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. He will drink from the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he will lift up his head. According to Verse 1, it says, the Lord says to my Lord. Well, who are these two lords? If we cross-reference this with Matthew twenty-two forty-four, Mark 12, 36, Luke 20, 42 to 43, this is unmistakably, indisputably, the Father speaking to the Son. God the Father speaking to the Son. The Lord, the Father, says to my Lord, the Son. So the Son of God is told by the Father to rule, verses 1 to 3, and even verses 5 to 7. The actions of the Lord here are the actions of a king. Rule in the midst of your enemy. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, verse 2. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. This is all 
terminology that comes from royalty, right? So the father calls the son or identifies the son as a king. But also, verse 4, he identifies him as a priest. The Lord has sworn. Who is that Lord? The same Lord as verse 1. When all four letters are capitalized, it's the same Lord as verse 1. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. Well, what has he sworn? He has sworn this. You, the Son of God, the Christ, you, the Christ, the Son of God, are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Well, no one else had that priesthood of Melchizedek. No one else fulfilled the duties of the order of Melchizedek. No one else was charged with those same duties. Only here is Christ charged as king and priest. Okay? So keeping that in mind, it should not surprise us by the time we get to verses 12 and 13 of Zechariah. Zechariah 6, 12. Then say to him, to Joshua, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the Lord of hosts, the, the Lord who has armies and can make this possible. Behold, a man whose name is Branch, for he will branch out from where he is and he will build the temple of the Lord. Let's notice a few points here. He's called a man. He's called a man, so he's going to be a man. He's going to be a perfect man without any sin. He's also going to be called branch, for he will branch out from where he is. Well, where is he before he branches out? He's going to be in heaven. So that means he possesses humanity and deity. And he's got the name branch. Humanity and deity. Zechariah 13, 7. Zechariah 13, 7. It says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, and against the man, my associate, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, that the sheep may be scattered, and I will turn my hand against the little ones. That phrase, strike the shepherd that the sheep may be scattered, is that not familiar? It's quoted in Matthew 26, 31 and Mark 14, 27. And Jesus says that that is in fulfillment when he was arrested and his disciples were scattered. Strike the shepherd that the sheep may be scattered. Well, who is this shepherd? Verse 7, back to the beginning of it. Against my shepherd, it's God's shepherd. God's shepherd is also called the man. He's also called my associate. The New American Standard Bible capitalizes S for shepherd and A for associate, identifying this with Christ. Zechariah 13.7 and Zechariah 6.12 both acknowledge Christ the branch as humanity and deity in one person before the incarnation. Because he's going to branch out from where he is. Well, where was he? In heaven. This also should not be a new concept to us. 
because it says in Micah 5, 2, Micah 5 and verse 2, which is quoted in Matthew 2, verse 6. It says, But as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Christ existed in eternity. He branched out from eternity and came into time, from eternity into history. That's Christ. Also, he's called a branch. He's called, whose name is Branch. This word for branch occurs elsewhere. It's capitalized here. And it's also mentioned in Zechariah 3, verse 8. My servant, the branch. This is Christ. Also, because the NASB identifies it so, we understand that the translators and scholars of this translation believed it was messianic or Christological branch. He's called branch famously in both Isaiah and Jeremiah also. Isaiah chapter 4. Isaiah chapter 4. And verse 2. Isaiah 4, 2. In that day, the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the earth will be the pride and the adornment of the survivors of Israel. The branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious. Capitalized also there. Isaiah 11. Isaiah 11, 1 to 10. 11 verse 1. Then a shoot will spring forth from the stem of of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. Each of those terms, shoot, stem, branch, should be capitalized. This will become more clear in a moment. Verse 2, and the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. Now they capitalize H for him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and strength, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord, and he will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he will judge the poor, and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Also righteousness will be the belt about his loins, and faithfulness the belt about his waist. And the wolf will dwell with the lamb. And the leopard will lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little boy will lead them. Also the cow and the bear will graze, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox, and the nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Then it will come about in that day that the nations will resort to the root of Jesse, who will stand as a signal for the peoples, and his resting place will be glorious. 
Who is this root of Jesse? Who was Jesse? Jesse was the father of David. The, who is then this, this root of Jesse, shoot, stem of Jesse, a branch from his roots? It's Christ. He, only Christ could have all of these virtues in perfection, and only Christ could judge without using his eyes and ears. Every other king has to use his eyes and ears to judge lawsuits, correct? Judges have to use eyes and ears to judge their lawsuits, but not Christ. Further, Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, we'll read 1 to 3. Isaiah 53, 1 to 3. Though, in this context, 52, 13 to 53, 12 speaks of the ministry of Christ. 52.13 to 53.12. We'll start at 53.1. Who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Here Christ is called a tender shoot uh, and a root out of parched ground. He's a shoot and a root. Further, we find in Jeremiah. Jeremiah 23. 23 verses 5 and 6. Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I shall raise up for David a righteous branch. And he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is his name by which he will be called, the Lord our righteousness. He could only be, this righteous branch of David could only be Christ. Because he's called a righteous branch. And his name is the Lord, our righteousness, verse 6 says. Salvation comes to the people, and he will reign and act wisely. Jeremiah 33. Jeremiah 33, 14 to 18. 33, 14 to 18. Jeremiah will not only call him the righteous branch of David again, but he's going to combine the two offices that Zechariah combined. 33, 14. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the good word which I have spoken concerning the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch of David to spring forth, and he shall execute justice and righteousness on the earth. In those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem shall dwell in safety. And this is the name by which she shall be called. The Lord is our righteousness. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel, and the Levitical priests shall never lack a man before me to offer burnt offerings, to burn grain offerings, and to prepare sacrifices continually. David will never lack a man, and the Levitical priests will never lack a man. The priests won't lack the priestly office, and the king will not lack the kingly office. How so? Because of the one man, the righteous branch of David, verse 15. 
He'll hold both offices. Okay, now back to Zechariah. It says in verse 12 and also verse 13, it is, yes, it is he who will build the temple of the Lord. He will build the temple of the Lord. It says it twice in 12 and 13, and it even emphasizes it. Yes, it is he. Well, what temple is he going to build? Because Zechariah is building one, at least by his preaching and exhorting the people to do it. Haggai and Zechariah. That temple was constructed, built in the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, Haggai and Zechariah. The physical temple was. And when it was built, it was meager. It was mean and meager compared to the glorious temple of Solomon. Right? Remember at the end of Ezra 3, the people moaned, bemoaned that fact. In Haggai chapter 2, they bemoaned that fact that the temple was great when Solomon built it, but the second one in the time of Zechariah was nothing compared to the first one. So what is this temple that the branch is going to build, Christ is going to build? That's answered in verse 15. It's not a physical temple. It's a human temple. It's a temple of redeemed people. We'll come to that in a moment. But meantime, verse 13 says, and he, and he, it is he who will build the temple of the Lord, and he who will bear the honor and sit and rule on his throne. He is going to bear the honor to sit and rule on his throne. He will do so. Thus, he will be a priest on his throne. Now we have the offices brought together again. Royalty in the first part of verse 13, and then the two offices combined in one individual, Christ. Thus, he will be a priest on his throne. A priest on his throne. And the council of peace will be between the two offices. How is it possible that there's going to be peace in this office permanently, eternally? How is it possible? Because the Prince of Peace will hold both offices so that there will be no conflict between king and priest, which is what happens typically throughout history. The king and the priest are vying for superiority within a kingdom, but not here, because the Prince of Peace, Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, calls him the Prince of Peace. The Prince of Peace will hold both offices, therefore there will be peace and harmony, and everything will be done properly because of his rulership. 14 now. Now, the crown will become a reminder in the temple of the Lord to Helam, Tovia, Yediah, and Hain, the son of Zephaniah. This... Um, this verse, first let's deal with the names. Helam is probably the same as Heldai of verse 10. Sometimes there are variations in the names. And sometimes there is a completely different name for the same individual. And since he's called Hain, the son of Zephaniah in 14, he's probably the same as Josiah, the son of Zephaniah in verse 10. That shouldn't uh, surprise us because 
there are some who have different names. Two names, two or more names in the Bible. Like in the case of Jacob, Jacob and Israel. Unless it were explained, we wouldn't know that Jacob and Israel are the same man, the same patriarch. In this case, likely by implication, it's the same individual, son of Sephania. Then, what is it that they are supposed to keep? It's a reminder, the crown will become a reminder in the temple of the Lord. It wasn't supposed to be worn all the time, but in the temple of the Lord, where it was kept, it was to be a reminder. A reminder of what? Verses 12 and 13. A reminder of the fact that the Christ would be both a king and a priest. Also, by the way, we should mention in verse 12 that in the Aramaic Targum of this verse, in this passage, in Zechariah 6, in the Aramaic Targum of this passage, the branch is translated or rendered Messiah. Rendered Messiah in this passage. So even the ancient Jews believed this was a messianic verse. It referred to the Christ, the Messiah. Um, Also, keep in mind that we have a psalm, Psalm 21. Psalm 21, which in one, in two places, in two places, the Targum, that is the Aramaic translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, it mentions Messiah in two of these verses in Psalm 21. Psalm 21, though it's not evident in our English Bible, it is a messianic psalm. The you, the your, the your, the him, refers to Christ, not David. So now look at it this way. Psalm 21, 1. O Lord, in your strength, the king will be glad. At that point, it says in the Targum, King Messiah. And in your salvation, how he will rejoice. Greatly he will rejoice. You have given him his heart's desire. You have not withheld the request of his lips. For you meet him with the blessings of good things. You set a crown of fine gold on his head. A crown of fine gold on the head of Christ. He asked life of you. You gave it to him. Length of days forever and ever. His glory is great through your salvation. Splendor and majesty you place upon him. For you make him most blessed Forever, You make him joyful with gladness in your presence. For the king trusts in the Lord. Now, which king is this? The Targum says it's King Messiah. Verse 7. For King Messiah trusts in the Lord. And through the loving kindness of the Most High, he will not be shaken. Your hand will find out all your enemies. Your right hand will find out those who hate you. You will make them as a fiery oven in the time of your anger. The Lord will swallow them up in his wrath and fire will devour them. Their offspring you will destroy from the earth and their descendants from among the sons of men. Though they intended evil against you and devised the plot, they will not succeed. For you will make them turn their back. You will aim with your bowstrings at their faces. Be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. We will sing and praise your power. 
Yes, the pronouns here refer to Christ, so they should be capitalized. The Targum identified this psalm as a Christological one. I think we should also. So, the crown is a reminder. This word, reminder, shadow, symbol, type, these are words that the Bible uses, both in the Old and the New Testaments, to teach us that the symbolism of the Old Testament symbolized Christ. They were intended to remind us of the coming work of Christ. Now, finally, uh, and by the way, if you want some verses on that, such as Hebrews 10, verse 1, calls the Old Testament shadows and they are fulfilled in Christ. Hebrews 10, verse 1. Uh, Also, Hebrews 8, verse 5. Hebrews 8, verse 5 calls the temple a pattern of the heavenly things. A pattern of the heavenly things. Then verse 15, we've come to 15. And those who are far off will come and build a temple of the Lord. Those who are far off. Who are far off? Who would be far off that would come to build the temple of the Lord? Keep our place here, and then let's go to Isaiah. Isaiah 56, Isaiah 56, 6 to 8. Isaiah 56, 6 to 8. It says, Also, the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him and to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, every one who keeps from profaning the Sabbath and holds fast my covenant... Even those I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar. For my house will be called a house of prayer for all the peoples. The Lord God who gathers the dispersed of Israel declares, Yet others I will gather to them, to those already gathered. Verse 7 is a reference to the nations of the world. It's quoted by Christ in Matthew 21, 13. Matthew 21, 13. My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the peoples or all the nations. And the nations include, verse 6, the foreigners. Not of the land of Israel or the people of Israel, but outside of Israel. This passage (coughs) is alluded to in Ephesians 2, Ephesians 2, 11 to 22. Ephesians 2, 11 to 22. We'll see the temple of the Lord, which is the people of the Lord, which comprises Jews and Gentiles, and Gentiles who are far off. And there will be peace and harmony because we are joined to Christ. Ephesians 2, 11. Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly, you who formerly were far off, there's our phrase, were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. 
for he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. That's a quote from Isaiah 57, 19. 57, 19, where Isaiah says that they were far away and brought near, uh, brought together to those who were near. For through him, verse 18, we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. Having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. There we have it. We were far off, the Gentiles 13 and 17. We are joined in Christ, and this brings peace it says in 15, one new man establishing peace, and that happens through the cross of Christ. And we are described as being a temple. Christ is the cornerstone of the temple, and we are the rest of the temple. The temple of the Lord, a holy temple of the Lord. And when this comes to fruition, we will know, we will believe that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. He also says in 16.15, Zechariah 16.15, and it will take place if you completely obey the Lord your God. This obedience is not the cause of the fulfillment of the prophecy, but it is the means of the fulfillment of the prophecy. Like we said in our message in John 15, 15, 1 to 8. The fruit that we bear is not the cause of our salvation, but it is the evidence of our salvation or the means of growth and evidence of our identity with Christ. He is the vine and we are attached to him as the vine. So in the same way here, when he says, it will take place if you completely obey the Lord your God. He's not saying God is dependent on our deeds to accomplish his purposes. He's not dependent as though he is a slave or he is a pauper. That's not what's being said here. It means that he uses our obedience to accomplish his will. That's what he means by if you completely obey the Lord your God. Because he's the one who has his power working within us to do his will. Hebrews 13, 20 to 21. His power works mightily within us. Ephesians 3, 20 to 21. When we work out our salvation with fear and trembling, it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Philippians 2, 12 and 13. This is what the prophet means. That God deigns to use us to accomplish his will. Not that he is a needy God,
but he uses us for his glory. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.